Hello and welcome to another episode of Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Rees from Instinctive Partners in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today's guest, I'm delighted to say, is Matt Grayson, Group Customer and Marketing Director at Red Row Homes, one of the UK's largest uh, house builders, who's steeped in corporate affairs experience, including with a certain Premier League football club. Matt, thanks very much for coming in to see us. Great to be here. Thank you. And also joining me today is my instinctive co-host, Emma Baxter, an account director here at Instinctive Partners. Emma, great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Matt, you've been in football, banking. Now you're in house building. Uh, how did that happen exactly? And uh, uh, what, what have been the most important moves in your career, would you say? Well, uh, I suppose to start from the beginning, I left university with a general business studies degree and um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I enjoyed uh, the media, um, I enjoyed people, uh, communication, so naturally sort of fell into the PR agency world, first with Chime Communications and then McCann Erickson. Really enjoyed that sort of agency um, experience, and I'm sure Emma will come on to talk about that in, in, in a few minutes as well. But uh, got to my late 20s and wanted to try in-house, really get underneath a market um, and understand sort of the, you know, the interaction between the board and how corporate affairs could really sort of make a difference in, the, in an organisation. So I had an opportunity to join the Halifax Bank of Scotland group, a really exciting business at the time. Um, Andy Hornby had come over from... Um, Asda, so I was bringing those retail principles over into into the bank and really attacking the big established um, top five. So I was in the specialist lending side of the business, the Bank of Scotland Group, the mortgage business, Birmingham Midshires. Had a great time, um, really enjoyable experience. Um, dealt with a few major crisis issues, self certification, subprime, and then in about two thousand and seven, um, we sponsored Wolverhampton Wanderers. And uh, there was an opportunity there for sort of a head of communications, head of marketing role. And at the time, about a year before, Steve Morgan, the founder of Red Row, bought the club. And it was someone that I'd admired for a long time. I knew um, quite well from a distance. You know, started Red Row with £5,000 from his dad alone, built it up from nothing. Um, an individual with a social conscience uh, about wanting to put back into communities via, via his foundation. Um, and a massive football fan. And it was kind of like, it's that old saying about trying to get on a train before it leaves the station. I thought, you know, at the time a club was in the championship, this club's heading to the Premier League, which um, it was just a great opportunity. And yeah, joined in 2007. And the timing was great on two fronts. Uh, a year later, um, terrible financial crash. Uh, HBOS obviously bought by Lloyds. And um, thankfully, Wolverhampton Wanderers got promoted to the Premier League. We had three great years there and then were relegated twice back to League One, which obviously um, wasn't a great experience. But, no. but uh, in terms of lessons learned, um, that was a really, uh, you know, big, interesting part of my career. And um, Steve came to the point around 2016 where he'd had enough and, and wanted to sell walls. And he offered me the chance to join Red Row, first as communications director, 
And then my responsibilities have broadened to um, sales, um, marketing, uh, and customer service as well. So managing that sort of end-to-end mm. um, customer that, relationship. That mix that you do is quite unusual, I think, is it not, for most corporate affairs leaders in most large public companies. I mean, they tend to stick with corporate affairs, which in itself is quite a, a wide um, a wide brief. But the stuff you do around customers and marketing, I mean, that's quite unusual, isn't it? I mean, how, how does that all fit together? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. And, and actually, it's kind of the drive in our industry to try and bring those retailing principles into house building and managing that lifelong relationship. Because actually, in house building, for too long, it's been kind of like, well, we'll sell a home and then we'll walk off into the sunset because it rarely do we deal with that customer again um, in the way that a football club clearly has got supporters often for the, for yeah, lifetime, for the lifetime of a supporter or, you know, Marks and Spencers are getting people back every every day or every week. Um, so actually, we, we're trying to bring those retail principles in, uh, manage that lifelong customer relationship, uh, which then in turn kind of improves the reputation because we're getting across any issues more quickly. We're staying in contact with customers. We're building communities, building great places. So that play between communications, uh, root cause, customer service, online social media and reputation, and then sort of wider customer corporate affairs just all play together really, really well and enable us really to create a, a, you know, a great strategy for the business, I guess. So the, the, world, the world of football is, is obviously fascinating to a lot of people. Um, and a big professional club like Wolves uh, in the Premier League uh, for most of the time you were, you were there. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, I mean, running communications in a Premier League football club must present some pretty unique challenges uh, for you, for the person in charge. Um, I mean, well, what are those challenges exactly? Wow, how long have we got? <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, what I'd say is that you use that word unique, and I think it's, uh, it, it's spot on. Uh, it, it's a melting pot of the beautiful game, um, supporters who are so dedicated to, to their club, it's a business, uh, it's got elite sports people and backroom staff involved. Uh, it's a hospitality organization, a commercial organization, a retailing organization. Um, during the, the, on a match day, the biggest expression of community that you'll get in a town or city on any day of the week. And then you throw into the fact that it's, uh, the Premier League is a global media platform that's broadcasting over 200 countries. So the scrutiny on a 24 hour uh, basis, 365 days a year, is just absolutely incredible. So it's very dynamic, it's very fast moving. Um, clearly social media and the growth of social media has, has absolutely sort of driven that. And uh, for good measure, it's a political football as well. So um, whether it's local politicians or, or national politicians all wanting to sort of have their say on the game. Uh, and that's what makes it such a, an interesting, vibrant, um, engaging industry to work in. You touched on a couple of those stakeholders there, um, lots of big personalities in football. Um, how do you go about organizing comms? Like, how did you organize your team or your approach to it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's often, um, often a question posed kind of like, how can you get organized in football yeah. just because it is so changing on an hourly basis? 
The one thing I is would say... chaotic, but... Chaotic. <laughs> yeah, organised chaos is probably the way of describing it. But I think the... Um, and it's actually an analogy with the business world as well, that in football, that triangle between the chairman or owner, the coach and the chief executive or director of football mm. is actually really, really key in terms of setting strategy and the relationship between that triangle. And as a corporate affairs director, if you can um, sort of be the glue that holds that or, or, or helps to create fluency between that uh, those three individuals, then that really helps to set strategy, which is the most important thing because, you know, it's not a strategy or plan unless you've got it written down. Yeah. And then there are sort of drum beats to a season. You know, you know when the games are, you know who your rights holders are and what you've got to uh, fulfil in terms of media commitments. Um, you, um, you know the press pack. And that's the interesting thing about working in football where you've got and you're dealing with a media pack. Mm. And I suppose you only ever see that whether, you know, lobby journalists, I suppose, in, 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 uh, in politics or, you know, certain other industries um, have that sort of scrutiny. So, yeah, working with a press pack, setting out the strategy, you know, the drum beats in the season and then just staying adept um, to all of these issues and, and staying close to supporters Um listening but not being knocked off course or your plan by upwards um, performance or downwards performance on the yeah. pitch and that's the key because you can easily get buffeted around by events on a day-to-day -day basis so you've got to find a way of being flexible but at the same time sticking to the plan of what you're trying to achieve I'd say. And excuse my ignorance but in terms of I'm a property gal not a football gal <laughs> um, in terms of your involvement with players, obviously they'll have their own agendas, own things they want to do. How do you manage that then within the kind of corporate strategy and the onward bit? Um, how, like, where did your role come into with them? Yeah, I mean, that's, again, it's a really good question. Uh, players have their own agents. Yeah. Um, and they do, you're right, they have their own agendas. Mm. Sometimes that works really well with a club. Sometimes, mm. you know, if they are trying to secure a move somewhere else, then, then obviously it can put put them at odds. Um, within my team, I had a great head of football media, a guy called Paul Berry, an ex-journalist, mm -hmm. that struck a really good chord between managing the players really closely and media commitments, uh, but also kind of representing the interests of the club. So I liken it to a bit like being the civil service where you, you, you're working for the government of the day, mm. uh, but but you know that that government might <laughs> might change um, and you, your responsibility is to the football club. Um, so so it's, it's striking a very, very delicate uh, balance. And the way of achieving it is integrity, trust, uh, honesty with players and staff about where they sit uh, and, and professionalism. And you just have to navigate your way between all those lines and, and grey areas, I guess. Yeah. I guess thinking about that, do you worry about the reputation of football? Obviously, you looked after your little patch, but do you worry about it as a whole? Um, I uh, I'm always hopeful about football because I I know the people that work in the industry, and um, many of them are in it for the right reasons. Mm. So um, often, it's working for clubs that they were brought up with since they were kids, and it's been their lifelong ambition to work for the club. But certainly, um, football has changed massively over the last thirty years in the formation of the Premier League. I mean, when the Premier League started out um, it has sort of like sailed the wave of globalization 
uh, and also changing content and content delivery, you know, the growth of the internet, um, the way content and, and football coverage is delivered has changed massively. And one thing I guess that maybe people don't realise is that when, when clubs join the Premier League, they automatically become a shareholder. So they own one twentieth of that league and then have the associated voting rights. So the reality is there's lots more overseas owners that have influence over the league and the direction of travel mm. that aren't necessarily that interested in local communities and more interested about the global opportunities it provides. And I think then that help, that sort of shapes the reputation and the issues that we've seen recently with a number of clubs trying to go for a European Super League um, to sort of secure those additional revenues at the cost of that local reputation and about that connection with supporters. And it's a really difficult balance for the, for the Premier League to, to, to strike, but it needs to strike it otherwise, um, politically, socially, connection with supporters, you know, there's a risk of that drifting away. Well, it loses its soul, doesn't it? Correct. And is, I mean, do you think it is losing its soul? I mean, are we irrevocably going down that route where owners come in, buy a club, and it just so happens to be located in Newcastle or, or Manchester, uh, but really what they're buying is a global asset, as you, as you say, a global media asset, a content asset. And, you know, the, 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 the location of the club, the local community, is, 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 a, is, a, is an afterthought compared to, you know, the asset they think they've got. I mean, it, are, we, are we going down that route, whatever, whatever happens? Are we losing that connection? I, I think you've constantly, as a football club, got to measure and calibrate that. Um, the, the unique thing about football is that you can be dealing with all the politics, dealing with all the nonsense, all the all the media issues, and then you can walk out to the side of the pitch or walk out to reception and you see a young family in there or a kid, a seven-year-old kid, eyes like dinner plates, meeting players, engaging with a club, and you know that that child is going to be a fan for life. Mm. And um, it's an amazing way of almost, um, you know, the, the, the connection uh, of those uh, families with a football club, as I say, can absolutely be, be lifelong. And what does help to drive it is the fact that there are a whole bunch of club foundations and charities, and Wolves has a tremendous charity, Wolves Foundation, which are legally separated from the club, but help to engage with those communities. So on the ground, I think that um, a lot of great work continues and a lot of great work is happening, but without a doubt, um, strategically, many owners are driven by the commercial opportunity. I mean, take Wolves, for example. Um, Fosen Group, a Chinese investment firm, owns Wolves. And I don't criticise them for this, but they're not particularly interested in investing in Wolverhampton. That they, they want to make, you know, they want to make money and sell the club for a profit and be successful on the football pitch. And I, I think that fans just need to maybe, um, and, and many of them do, sort of appreciate that, see themselves as custodians of the club and need to sort of um, use media pressure or their own pressure as supporters to try and make sure that they can create some equilibrium, get the opportunity of this great investment firm that's investing in the club in, in terms of players, but making sure that they're, they're making the voices heard, that they need to be investing in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's the balance that needs to be struck. I think. As, as, as a supporter, as a fan, it, 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 I, 
I think it can be quite bewildering at times now uh, in the, in the way that football has become this political issue. Uh, it's 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 a game that carries with it. It's a vehicle almost for a lot of other political messages and political issues. So taking the knee, um, polit- external political issues that somehow get. Well, Marcus ag- Rashford and his. Marcus Rashford, that's yeah. a very good, a very good example. His free males. Uh, and and then you know, the Saudi takeover of Newcastle and the whole human rights issue and green, uh, sports washing and so forth. I mean, do you think that is another risk almost in the way that the game is becoming disconnected to your ordinary punter who who turns up hopefully on a three o'clock on a Saturday or half past five or, you know? Yeah, I I think, again, it's a really good point. And, um, you know, I made the point there about Marcus Rashford and his campaign and obviously the Saudis coming into to Newcastle as well. I think that um, you look globally at the geopolitics and the lines are being redrawn globally, aren't they? And when you're a global organisation, uh, whatever industry you're in, you, you one of the risks of that is that clearly your operations can be influenced, can't they, by those lines being redrawn. And the Premier League certainly is absolutely exposed to that. And as, as I've said, they are, you know, and provide the biggest probably media platform in the country um, thousands, millions of fans seeing live football in full stadium, over 90% occupancy in every ground, Premier League ground in the country. So so absolutely, it's the focal point. And I must admit, it did used to drive me mad because you'd have so many great causes and great charities wanting to access that media platform with various initiatives. Even when I was there in, in sort of 2009, 2010 in the Premier League, it was just a danger of almost just overload because, mm. you know, it was literally something else every single week on that front. So I think the Premier League needs to carve out and um, provide greater clarity on what its principles are and what its values are and um, set probably a better structure and be more vocal about that. And it probably hasn't been as vocal as it could have been because of the politics of dealing with their 20 shareholders. But we've seen recently with the government white paper trying to introduce regulation into football um, that that government are now taking steps to try and achieve that, you know, that balance really. And, uh, you know, trying to set out their own plan to get football as they see it onto the right tracks. So is regulation the answer? I think it's part of the answer. Yeah. but there's, it's like any regulation, isn't it? There's a real danger of creep. Uh, and, um, you know, the Premier League is one of the country's great global mm. exports, great global success stories. So ultimately, and it's a mature market, isn't it? I mean, football's 160 odd years old. The Premier League's 30 years old. Um, government thinks it hasn't got its house in order. So therefore, you know, inevitably in these sort of mature markets, the government steps in. But um, the danger is they it undermines the success of the Premier League. So mm. there's a balance to be struck. And the white paper sets out, <clears throat> excuse me, some, some key areas that need to look at about, you know, ensuring that an owner can't change the name of a club or the brand of a club, um, can't um, sort of like um, join a European Super League equivalent. Mm. 
So offering protections about that. But for example, the white paper touches on nothing about ticket prices, yeah, uh, which is a really big issue for fans. So I think that's one example of where there could be a real danger of regulatory creep and where the media will put a lot of pressure on an independent regulator to step into additional areas. So there's, there's, there's risks around it, but also opportunity because um, the game does need to be nurtured and protected. And, and I think a light touch regulator can help to do that. Yes, I've never actually come across a light touch regulator <laughs> in, in my life, uh, but we, we live in hope. We live in hope. And um, one thing I've been really struck by is the rise of the women's game. Mm. Uh, I have a, a football mad daughter who's who's heavily involved in the game uh, these days, um, and the experience in 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 the women's game is so different than that of the men's, um, particularly as a as a as a as a viewer, as a as a supporter. Um, as a fan, the experience is quite different. Uh, this, the, the, the feel of the game is different. The spirit mm. around the game is different. Are there things you think that the men's game can learn from the women's game and vice versa? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, the first thing is that the, um, the women, the England women's team has won a major trophy mm. and winning creates momentum. Yeah. How about winning? Yeah. <laughs> and, and in a way, it's a flippant point. Let's start point. with that one. Yeah, it's a flippant point, but a serious point. Yeah. Because, um, How they, did they do that? Yeah, they've won a major trophy. They created momentum. They uh, Attendances are improving in the women's game. Um, importantly, clubs are embracing the women's game and investing in it more. You know, Manchester United for many, many years under Sir Alex Ferguson um, never had a women's football team. Uh, I'm really pleased to say now they do. And uh, the vision for the game has got to be, um, as a viewer or a supporter, exactly as it is in tennis, where you can be watching the Wimbledon tennis championships, you turn on your TV, might be a women's game, elite game, it might be a men's um, elite game, and you can watch both and enjoy them for... for um, for, for different reasons as a spectacle. And that's certainly and definitely where football needs to get to. And, and I think it's creating a tremendous additional amount of diversity and thoughts and thinking in the game because it has been male dominated for far too many years. There's certainly not enough female representation on boards of football clubs. Mm. Um, that's a, a, an issue that really needs to be addressed. And I'm sure the regulator will probably get to that at some stage. Um, so it's hugely positive for the men's game, and and and, and I think that that and the women's game. And you're right, uh, Damien. Both both parts of the game can can learn mm. from each other. Mm. Would Would you be uh, tempted to go and watch women's football? So I actually am. I'm going the May bank holiday weekend. I'm going to see Arsenal women's. I now live North London. I'm determined ah. to make this a thing. That's um, my daughter watches. Yeah. Well, I think this is because I think for me, ultimately, I've quite like so many of my friends are football fans. I think it's really great to be able to see. Um, it's great to be able to see women's teams, great to see investment in women's sport. To your community point earlier, I think there's the knock on effect there, like grassroots sport Absolutely. is hugely important in communities. And I think like girls sport has seen a lot, awful lot of inward investment from like the success of the Lionesses, like um, over the last wee while. So I think that's super important. And I think as well for the men's game, it's it's the male players and the the football teams 
making sure, like taking responsibility to make sure that they're being given parity, that they're being put on put on an equal footing. It's like the champion women, championing women as well. Um, so I think it's all been great. I don't just say that as a as a woman, but uh, I think it's been really heartening to see. Yeah, really no, I'd, I'd completely agree with that. And actually, the football association comes in for a lot of stick. Yeah, but um, they um, they they deserve a lot of credit for how they've developed the women's game down the years, integrated them into St George's Park, which is yeah. the the training base where the England uh, men's team, all age groups, train. So so almost accessing those elite um, training facilities. And, um, you know, connecting with sponsors. So, you know, they've they've had some major sponsorship deals that have now come into the women's game, which then goes back into facilities, back into youth development programmes. The the, the Premier League often and still does talk about this virtual, um, sorry, this virtuous circle where you create a great product, great games, great players. You have full stadium that creates um, a demand from media rights holders mm. and they can then sell those rights for significant money, yeah. which then goes back into uh, clubs to buy great players, invest in infrastructure, because clearly one of the things that the Premier League's helped drive is you know, much, much better stadium. We've seen Everton about to um, launch their new stadium. I mean, the list goes on. You know, the, the Emirates, I think, has opened during the tenure of the Premier League, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, Liverpool improved the stadium, Manchester City. So um, the same thing is happening to the women's game. I mean, they're still in the foothills of what they can achieve, but you can see that circle now. Attendance is improving, media rights holders, um, the, the game's being broadcast live on, on TV. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting. And it's just a great thing for the game. And from a communications perspective, I think they've been very successful at leveraging the personalities that they have. Like, I don't know if either of you guys are on TikTok. Maybe that's presumptuous. But like, they've been hugely good at like leveraging the personalities of their team and also integrating that with the existing personalities in the men's team. Like, this is from England. But I think it's been great. And I think you see a knock-on of that into other sports. Like, tennis is a great example where women do have equal... Um, do have equal like billing so to speak but you see it in rugby like with women's six nations and all that like i think it's a great thing it's definitely pushing it forward you're now at red row probably a much calmer place than uh, (laughs) Premier league and wolverhampton wanderers but what are the main communication and reputation issues you're dealing with at red row yeah i mean red row is a great business i mean we um sell homes across england and wales but quality homes, uh, premium homes, and, and and great places as well, because obviously it's not just about uh, great homes that families live in, but again, the, the quality of the place in terms of connectivity to local networks, um, open spaces, you know, where families can really live and enjoy their kind of forever home, I, um, I guess. And um, really, I, I think for us, um, for Red Row, that there's a really big strategic communications challenge because the house building industry seemingly is under ta- under attack from the current government most weeks. Um, the reputation of the industry because of certain builders not building to great quality, um, uh, that's weighed down on the reputation of the industry. So it's about differentiating our offer from that sort of maybe stereotypical view of the industry and setting out you know, why we're different from that and what our agenda is and what we're trying to achieve. 
and highlighting the fact that you know, the, the economic benefit that we have in communities is just incredible. Not only um, just in the houses that we build because there's a chronic housing shortage in this country, but we're the best vehicle for social mobility, I think, of any industry uh, in this country. You know, you can take an a 16-year-old apprentice, develop them, uh, whether it's a, a bricklayer or a plasterer on site, and then see them go off and start their own businesses and then and then employ their own people and then work for Red Row in the supply chain. It's hugely satisfying. And of course, um, as part of our developments uh, that we create, we invest back into communities via what's called the Section 106 funding, which doesn't sound very glamorous, but what it means is a proportion of the income we generate is put back into um, things like schools, infrastructure, um, open spaces. Um, so a huge amount going back into uh, back into communities. And, um, you know, we continue really to try and uh, engage with national media communities to, to really set ourselves apart. Um, we are a nation that's obsessed with house building and with home ownership and all of that. And during the pandemic, homes became such a huge part of the news agenda. And there was obviously lots of different things the government did to help protect home ownership and um, protect mortgages and all of that. Like, how did the pandemic affect Red Row? How did Red Row do during that? Well, I think when uh, the market reopened after after COVID, it took us all by surprise mm. because the starting gun was fired on the race for space, as it yeah. became known. Families had obviously spent a long time, people spent a lot of time cooped up during COVID. And there was definitely a life's too short. We want to have more space and we want more open space. And we want to head out to um, sort of these semi-rural locations, maybe willing to travel or live further away from cities because they can work from home now two, three days a week and sacrifice that you know, for a longer travel time when they do need to go into their main town or city. So it really played into our product offer, as I say, larger homes, open plan living um, downstairs, these great open plan, modern interiors, timeless exteriors, and great places which are connected to local travel networks, um, great open spaces for the kids to play. And uh, we really benefited from that. So it's kind of played into our, um, you know, our offer, mm. I, I guess. And um, we see that as something that's just going to continue. So so this race for space, how do you square that with the Britain's famous planning regulations? I mean, um, presumably this race for space, given the planning restrictions, is only going to mean one thing, which is that property prices are going to go ever, ever higher, which probably isn't great for a limited body. Yeah, I mean, planning in this country is a major issue. I mean, the planning system's broken. Uh, it takes far, far too long to to, to secure planning. And um, not enough is said about the opportunity cost of that. Going back into my answer a few moments ago about, you know, what we deliver back in infrastructure and school places and so on, uh, and, and employment and jobs in local, local communities, let alone before we start on the houses that so desperately need to be, uh, need to be delivered. And... Um, the government absolutely needs to to, to recognise that uh, and needs to address it because the the, the problem's only going to get worse. There's a, just this chronic undersupply 
and um, both the government and the industry needs to continue to work hard to explain to communities why great quality housing is so essential to to local um, local communities and that's just an ongoing job of um, finding new ways to engage whether it's digitally via social media improving how we con consult with communities um, really investing a lot of time in engaging more with politicians about our agenda and the HBF, the Home Builders Federation does a really good job of that already, but I think there's always more we can do. And um, and, and yeah, just keep banging the drum in the media that, that the planning system absolutely needs desperate reform and needs it urgently. Planning aside, do you think house building in itself as an industry with a reputation problem? Like I think as, pe like as somebody in house building, you understand the limitations of planning, but if we think just for Joe Blogs on the street wanting to buy a home, do you think there's a reputation problem for house builders? Um, yes. Um, I think that um, the the stories of Persimmon and uh, and Bovis of a few years ago um, sort of weighed down on the reputation of the market just in terms of um, the stories regarding the, the bonuses associated to Jeff Fairburn and Persimmon and also the quality issues uh, of those two organisations, and unfairly, it's kind of the rest of the industry gets tarred with that that particular uh, brush, and 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 also we've got have to acknowledge that people don't want to see necessarily developments on their doorstep. You know, they love to live in new homes, um, uh, but don't necessarily want to see developments next door to them. Yeah. So um, that's an ongoing. Um, issue for us to, to to really engage with, and as I say, uh, the industry is working all the time on um, whether that's that's reaching out via social media, um, digitally, talking about all the all, all the benefits that we bring to local communities, highlighting the fact that in the new homes market now, over ninety percent of customers uh, would happily recommend their home builder to, to to a friend eight weeks after completion of moving into a home which is a, a fantastic statistic for the industry um, so it's come on a long way but yeah. you know obviously there's a lot there's a lot more to do and if we think as well what we were talking about about the women's game and um, how sort of gender diversity is improving within football construction like home, house building it is also seen as being very male dominated also very white um, do you think the reputation of house building can be improved by more diversity, by more diverse management and workforces? I know that apprenticeships can do a huge amount in bringing more diversity into house building. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, in office-based roles, mm. we've got a great, there's a great level of diversity, mm. um, but but actually out on site. So those practical roles, roles, bricklaying, plastering and so on, we've got a lack of females and we're doing a huge amount of work to really drive that in terms of recruitment, both both on an industry level and from a red row point of view. But I also think there's a wider point as well about recruiting young people full stop, whether they're male or female into the industry, um, into, into those sorts of roles. And um, I think that our investment in kind of technology new ways of building, um, pointing out the pathways to young people, um, of demonstrating it's an engaging industry, really, really key. We keep driving that and bringing those skills through because unfortunately, one of the 
issues that we're grappling with with as an industry is an aging workforce out mm. on site and in construction. And I think it's been reported quite widely in the press following COVID. You know, we've seen a lot of over 55s take early retirement and that's even more pronounced when you're in construction and the roles can be very physically demanding, working outside in all seasons. Um, uh, the industry is more prone to those people leaving the market. So we need to bring in that new blood and those new ideas in, in, into the industry. Um, and that's certainly a, a really big area of focus for us. What are the most important forms of media for Red Row? I think certainly social media mm. is, is a really, uh, as it is for any organisation, but I think in, in um, home building, probably the industry is quite slow to, to, to pick up on the power of social media. Um, for so long, for instance, when it comes to consultation, uh, planning consultation, the industry was putting up a, putting up a few boards in a local community centre uh, and, and then sending it out an, an invite and asking people to come and look around. Well, you know, and one or two people attending uh, and that was it. Whereas we're using these platforms to uh, sort of target areas with proactive messages about what we're bringing to communities in terms of value uh, to really sort of help to shape and I suppose enlighten people about, uh, as I say, the benefits of, of building their area and extremely powerful as I say, whether it's for local communities or, or local politicians and um, more needs to be done in, 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 in home building to sort of use those platforms to, to greater effect. And, and I think I've tried and the colleagues within Red Row, we've tried to take um, inspiration from sport and retailing and um, content using our own media platforms uh, to, to create different types of content to sort of put out to customers not just about trying to say, you know, come and buy this new home, get it while you can sort of message, but this broader offer that we've got and I've talked about in terms of places and, and, and putting back into communities. And I think for, for a long time, home building was very sales led, but it's broadening out now and is a different type of culture rather than just purely a selling culture more about trying to differentiate through customer service and customer experience as well. So how we, you know, communicate and reach out to customers via these new media platforms, you know, really, really important. Well, it's also more lifestyle led now, right? Because one of the things you're able to chat to your key audiences in different ways now, but they're also able to talk back. It's a bit more of a two way conversation. Um, how do you manage both the positive and the negative of being able to hear more from your customers now and then meet that with types of columns that you're putting out. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really great point. I mean, one of the things that we've brought into Red Row is that we, we now take every social media contact come into the business, whether it's from a customer or a politician, uh, a journalist, for example. We can um, then electronically push that out to colleagues across England and Wales mm. so that the responses actually coming back to those queries from the local division. Um, so it could be a customer saying, I've got a, a problem with a leaking pipe. Um, and our response can be, oh, well, we've got a technician that's just round the corner mm. because the response is coming from that local, um, that local contact rather than the centre yeah. and the group coming back with a generic response. Mm. So we can integrate social media and we have done 
into our business. And, and we've created a, a kind of a reputation army from that point of view. Um, and because we manage that electronically in the communications team, we can validate and, and we're air traffic control on those responses because clearly you need that governance and, and management around it. But we've also um, leveraged the strength of our local divisions when it comes to responding to, to reviews on, on Trustpilot as well. Um, so colleagues are engaged in thanking customers for great reviews or if it's not so good review, responding to it, but then putting it back into local teams so we can act on it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the feedback, and we collate every single customer comment back into root cause. So if it's an issue, is it a technical or a design problem? So go straight through to the technical um, team. If it's positive, obviously then we can do more of it, yeah. more of that design work. So so we're constantly listening all the time. And, and as, uh, as you say, social media is just a great real time sort of measure on where you sit, uh, uh, where you sit as a business. Homes and football are both things in the UK that we feel very strongly about. What are the similarities in communicating um, in these two very different um, different spaces? Yeah, it's a really good point, um, Emma. And um, uh, I think when you're dealing with whether it's supporters or homeowners, it's uh, it's something that's so close to kind of family life and your your you, you know your makeup literally how you've been brought up, part of your, part of your DNA. And um, I think that um, as, as an organisation, whether you're a football club or a home builder, is that point about listening and staying close to supporters and close to customers, um, demonstrating empathy um, about what they're saying uh, about their club or their home builder, but also importantly, kind of taking action on it. I think in football, um, you can be dealing with some really big major issue and it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that what matters to the supporter is their child being able to buy the shirt they want, that they want or the programme on a match day or being able to get hold of a drink or a pie at half time and not have to stand in the queue for ages and ages. Mm -hmm. So you really need to engage with those issues that really matter to supporters. And it's exactly the same in home building as well. You can get carried away but actually, what does a homeowner really want? Well, they want a quality home where their family can live in it and really enjoy it, um, have great memories in that home. And if there are issues, and issues do arise because it's a hand-built product built over a number of seasons, um, that we get across it and we deal with it with honesty and integrity. And um, I think those are the things that are really similar in those two, two markets. In your career, Matt, who have been your mentors? Well, no surprise. Yes, Steve Morgan, a really big uh, influence. Um, going back to that point on values, I think that um, one of the great things that he brings to or has brought to business and sport is the fact that um, his attention to detail, his drive, and also if you look at what he's done with his charity, the Steve Morgan Foundation, what always impressed me and still does to this day is that he's not just simply kind of a checkbook giver. He will, under the radar, away from any media attention, drive around and go and see charities and community groups and understand um, their sort of issues, um, 
what the problems are that he could potentially address and then takes that away, thinks about it and then delivers positive action on the back of it. So he's done that in his charity and he's also done that throughout his business life. And if you hadn't had a career in corporate uh, uh, affairs and corporate communications and uh, customer relations and all, all, all of that good stuff, what would your dream job be? Well, Man managing wolves, perhaps, <laughs> rather than... Uh, Is this where we get the classic male response that you would have been a footballer if you hadn't torn your ACL at 19? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of love to say that, but I was never any good at football whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, um, it's a bit of a cheesy response, but I've, I count myself very lucky that I've, I've, I'm, I'm in a, a role that I've always dreamed of because I've always enjoyed business. I always wanted to be part of a great business in the leadership team of a business. And I, and I feel very fortunate um, to, to be in that position now. And, and equally, since I was a young kid and attending my first game, I, I thought I always wanted to get involved in football. And I remember as a, an eight-year-old writing to my local football club saying that I was really disappointed with the results and I feel that I could change the football club around and that one day I was going to be owning the club and managing it. And I got a fantastic response that I've kept to this day from the sort of club secretary at the time saying, well, you know, that's great and look forward to seeing you running Sheffield Wednesday in the future as, as, as my childhood club was. So, um, so I count myself very lucky. Obviously there's been a big uh, dose of, you know, as I say, luck and hard work involved, but um but yeah, I've, I've, I'm uh, uh, very fortunate those two roles have, have happened in my career, I guess. So you're living the dream. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much for your time today and the opportunity to discuss your career and insights. You've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Reese, and my co-host today, Emma Baxter. Emma, thanks for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Our guest today has been Matt Grayson, Group Customer and Marketing Director at Red Row Homes. Join us again for our next episode of Spin Unspun. Details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com. 